Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to Hellenistic Christendom, Philosophy for Understanding Theology. Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn. I'm the author and creator of Hellenistic Christendom, a podcast dedicated to the subject of philosophy for a better understanding of Christian theology. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to be taking a break from my sort of lecture-oriented episodes, and instead today address some questions from friends and other acquaintances on social media about Soren Kierkegaard. Now, the request for uh, questions that I sent out wasn't regarding anything specific, so whatever particular religious or philosophical questions someone had, I was going to answer it in a way that was, I think anyway, faithful to Kierkegaard. Now, I'll try my best not to rant or spend too long on anyone's particular question, although some questions by their subject, of course, require some more attention than others. This isn't to show any partiality from me towards anyone. I just want to make sure that I have time to make my rounds, so uh, I hope my treatments always come out sounding at least fair. But either way, I have questions from various individuals who I'm only going to refer to by their first names. So I have Lorem, I have Frank, Juan, Aaron, Vladimir, Devin, Anthony, and some others meshed in there. And most excitingly, um, a part of this episode, we have two questions from Gordon Marino, who is the author and editor of several books on Soren Kierkegaard and existentialism. Uh, most recently worth mentioning is that he is one of the editors alongside Jamie Lorenzen um, of the recently published I think it's called Taking Kierkegaard Personally. Uh, it's a wonderful arrangement of essays from various scholars and philosophers that were collected from the 2018 uh, International Kierkegaard Conference that takes place at St. Olaf College, uh, which I haven't had a chance yet to get my hands on, um, but I'm really excited to pick that up in the near future. So shout out to Gordon Marino and, of course, every other individual who graciously submitted a question um, to help foster the content of this episode. So I'll go ahead and begin with the first question, which comes from Aaron, which, yo, what up? Shout out to the entire state of Hawaii, but mainly to Oahu, which is where I spent three years growing up. She asks, what has impacted you most about Kierkegaard? So in order for me to, I guess, approach this question, I think I have to start with, you know, how I started with Kierkegaard, how I first came across him, and then just kind of show how he's grown with me over time. Now, initially, I was 17 when I first heard of Kierkegaard. I remember being in my high school library and came across this section of philosophical encyclopedias, which there was absolutely no one reading these books at the time, uh, probably ever. Uh, I first read the biographical sort of basics about Kierkegaard, um, mainly hearing about how he was 23 or so years old and then had a relationship with this 14-year-old girl, his fiance at the time, or would come to be his ex-fiance, Regine Olson. And I don't remember from there if I read anything concrete regarding his philosophical works, but alas, there was my first brush with Kierkegaard. And so, of course, none of this really made an impression on me until a year later I got myself I got myself involved in a pretty impressionable relationship, which ended somewhat abruptly, for me anyway. Now, at the time, I was very delved into my philosophical studies. This was the first time I was being exposed to the world of books, of scholarship, fancy learning, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, because at the time, I was preparing for an application to a program at Blackfriars College at the University of Oxford, to get more involved with philosophical theology. And so I was becoming very immersed in the world of professional philosophy. I wanted to eventually become a professor uh, of philosophy at a university somewhere overseas, mainly with the intent of becoming published, um, getting involved with journals and research projects and all that exciting stuff. Well, to no fault to this young woman at all, uh, I eventually had a breaking off with this girlfriend that made a pretty significant impression on me. 
Uh, in fact, the impression was rather strange, if I could call it anything. This was kind of for the first time I started to notice something of an existential crisis kind of within myself. Uh, but Kierkegaard, I would find, much later would come to call this as an instance of inward deepening. This is how I kind of understand that whole period and that whole process. Now, um, moving forward, I slowly waned off of the analytic and sort of professional attitude of philosophy in this period and became more inclined towards areas of study which didn't involve rigorous rationalistic and intense sort of intellectual attention. And so this was where my first exposure to the existentialists uh, came from. Um, particularly, I remember starting with Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre uh, first, to which then Soren Kierkegaard would kind of follow shortly after. My introduction to the existentialists was very powerful because I was exposed to them in some pretty raw passions and emotions at the time, which is, of course, either really good or really bad, depending on who you're reading and I guess, how you appropriate the content towards your own life. And I actually snagged this quote from John Paul Sartre that I wanted to read um, for this question. And I actually used it in an essay that I wrote back in 2013. I kind of came across it by accident, uh, which was around the time that this breakup was just starting to run its course. I was like 18 at the time, so bear with me if I sound like such a sad boy. But Sartre says, um, The absurd man will not commit suicide. He wants to live, without relinquishing any of his certainty, without a future, without hope, without illusion, and without resignation, either. The absurd man asserts himself by revolting. He stares at death with passionate attention, and his fascination liberates him. He experiences the divine irresponsibility of a man sentenced to die. Now, the passage was important for me for several reasons. First, this was my first exposure to the idea of the absurd man, which is an individual who, like the condemned Sisyphus that we find in the writings of Camus, rolls the stone up the mountain only to have it fall back down again. However, the absurd man, says Camus, is one who recognizes and almost embraces the absurd by way of his radical freedom. And stated another way, um, the absurd man recognizes his inherent meaninglessness, which existence presents itself with, that his coming to be is really a no thing, so to speak. And yet, nonetheless, the absurd man rebels towards existence or the absurd by way of this asserting himself. Now, the second thing worth mentioning is sort of my greatest anxiety in life, which I would call it, which is death, my own non-being. And after years of growing up with this death anxiety, I finally arrived by way of the aid of philosophy towards understanding it in its proper context. I, too, could become like the absurd man and stare death in the face with passionate attention. I succumbed, um, sorry, I succumbed here, um, from here to the depths, if you will, uh, of Friedrich Nietzsche, eventually discovering the postmodern theology of Thomas Altizer and other radical so-called death-of-God theologians of the late 1960s and 70s. It was a pretty crazy breakup, man, at 18. <laughs> and so, long story short, I started reading Kierkegaard. I don't remember exactly how, although I do remember reading a passage, now that it's coming to me, from Walter Kaufman's Existentialism. Um, from Dostoevsky to, uh, to Sartre. And I read a famous passage from Soren Kierkegaard that was written in his journals, uh, I believe in 1835, some years before he would end his relationship with Virginia Olsen. And even uh, after then, obtaining the equivalent of a doctorate's degree in theology. So this is very early in Kierkegaard's life before all this big stuff starts happening with the world, his starting his authorship and all that stuff. Um, and he says something to the effect of, what I really need to be clear about is what I am to do not what I must know, 
uh, except in the way that knowledge precedes all action. It's a question of understanding my destiny, of seeing what God, or I think he says the deity, what it really wants me to do. The thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I'm willing to live and die. Now, the passage goes on for quite some time. Uh, it's a few pages long. But it struck me precisely because Kierkegaard writes in a way that sometimes makes you say, I thought I was the only one that thought that. And so I dove into Kierkegaard more and more and came across a passage in his journals, uh, again, written in 1849, I think. Uh, it's one of my favorite ones, so I should know that. Uh, that really changed everything for me. And it was something to the effect of, when the engagement broke, my feeling was this. Either you plunge into wild dissipation, drunkenness and promiscuity, or absolute religiousness, but of another brand, he says. Um, now, it's a very simple passage in itself, but for me, actually reading that either-or distinction for the first time, something immediately within me said that I wanted to choose absolute religiousness, although I know at the time that I hadn't already. And so around, I think, about 20 years old, maybe 19, I began to dive pretty heavy into Soren Kierkegaard and was eventually lifted out of the sort of melancholic and sort of intellectualistic spiritualism that was dragging me along for what felt like years, although it was really only about maybe two years or more or less, something like that. And so there's actually a passage from his journals, written again in 1849, where he says, Oh, but how a person can for a long, long time, year after year, live on and suffer and maybe torment himself under a certain understanding of some particular Christian thing. And then suddenly a light can go on for him. He is able to see the same thing from another angle. And now he feels his relief like that of a starving man who has given food. And so Kierkegaard for me is impactful precisely because I think I have found something or someone which really describes all kinds of experiences that I've had in my own life, which I hadn't up to that point been able to really find elsewhere. And I still haven't. And actually, just kind of a funny side point, I think it's pretty scary actually if you put side by side the biographical details of Kierkegaard's life next to my own. Uh, the character of his melancholy and his anxiety, his relation to his brother Peter, even. Uh, my brother also happens to be a pastor. He's reformed, but not Lutheran, uh, and some other details that are pretty significant. Uh, long story short, I just like him a lot because I feel like I can relate with him in a very deep way, if I could have just said that in so many words. Now, this next question comes from Anthony, which I was very pleased and blessed to see that you had submitted a question, so it's wonderful to see you here. But what, if anything, he asked, does Kierkegaard have to say to secular readers? Yeah, so that's actually a really great question, and I think it's really tricky to answer because from what I've gathered from <clears throat> Kierkegaard's journals and other writings is that he doesn't speak of secularization in ways that include atheists, agnostics, new age sort of spiritualists, and so forth as readers of his work. And I think this is more so because this is due to how we understand the broad umbrella which the secular includes more so today. And so when he makes references to my dear reader, he actually isn't technically referring to whomever's hands the book happens to be residing in. Yes, it is agreed that in the 1851 preface of his book, uh, Judge for Yourself, Kierkegaard says that I address myself to the single individual, every individual. But he makes this really important clarification where he says, or to everyone as an individual, would to God that all would read, but everyone as an individual. Now, it seems to me that there's an obvious difference in Kierkegaard between the author's intent and what the reader takes away or makes of, of the work. 
However, Kierkegaard's dear reader is one who quietly, patiently, and humbly yields themselves to undertaking the daunting task of understanding Kierkegaard, because people forget how often he claimed of being misunderstood, even once jokingly saying in his journals that people don't even understand his complaint that he's being misunderstood. And so then, in order to really try and understand him, first you have to read him, and this isn't speaking specifically to you, just, of course, generally. And so the dear reader is one who tries his best to align what they take away from the work with what Kierkegaard intends through the work. Now, an example of the opposite effect is best shown in the case of um, J.L. Heiberg, uh, his literary review of Kierkegaard's Repetition, which was a review that Kierkegaard was very annoyed with and was the reason he produced that short work entitled The Prefaces, which is something of a sort of sarcastic polemic uh, against Heiberg, but is more generalized because, remember, he does have a sort of sarcastic respect for him nonetheless. And I don't remember if it was precisely in this work, The Prefaces, or if it was in his journals where he said this, but Kierkegaard made the important remark, and he actually got this from the early church father Clement of Alexandria in his book uh, The Stromata who said that he would write in such a way so that the heretics couldn't understand him. And so there's a sense in which those individuals who totally miss the point of Kierkegaard kind of receive no word from him, at least not a nice one. And so the solitary individual is one who takes up the task of not just reading Kierkegaard, which is already difficult, but really attempting to understand Kierkegaard. And it's a burden that not too many modern minds uh, and readers are willing to carry. And so then the question for me becomes... What is the individual being directed towards? And I promise we're still on track with your question, but I just want to kind of refer to this passage. Um, in 1851, where in his journals, Kierkegaard goes over the scope of his authorship, and he makes this remark. He, of course, mentions an urgent request to beg his readers to read aloud. But then he goes on to say, Just one thing more. I hardly need say that by wanting to win people, it is not my intention to form a party, to create secular, sensate togetherness. No, my wish is only to win people, if possible all people, each individual for Christianity. Now this isn't to discourage your question, but it's only to clarify that Kierkegaard can't be appropriated towards a reductively secular interpretation. And so if the details in Kierkegaard's writings were arranged otherwise than how they were presented or intended for another purpose, then you don't get Kierkegaard. In most popular cases, you instead get Jean-Paul Sartre, or you get Albert Camus, or you might even get a whole generation of psychoanalysts, um, or psychoanalysts who were inspired by Kierkegaard's concept of anxiety. And so Kierkegaard makes clear in his journals that the docents, that French word he constantly uses for teachers, uh, they will read him in an instructive way rather than in an experimental way. And so I think Regine Olsen uh, said it best before she died, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if anyone surveys the life and writings of Soren Kierkegaard, they will find such a movement of divine governance that it could serve almost as an argument for God's existence. And so the religious element of Kierkegaard is behind every corner of his authorship that it's really almost hard to ignore. But uh, I'll... I'll say this by way of a kind of final word for how secular readers could approach Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard is often interpreted as having a sadistic element to him. One contemporary of Kierkegaard once wrote of a dream that he had uh, about Kierkegaard where he describes himself seeing Jesus standing over a mountain condemning sinners to judgment. And this individual happened to see Kierkegaard standing next to Jesus laughing at 
sinners. And so I think this is a rather harsh depiction of Kierkegaard's sort of sadism, but I still think it's also an important depiction that Kierkegaard really thought he understood human beings pretty well, so much so that he referred to himself in several ways as a psychologist, or what he called one who cares for the human soul. Uh, One time in the journals, he refers to himself as a master spy, another as a seducer, another as a cunning individual, a deceiver, a master of ideals, a connoisseur of men. And so this means that Kierkegaard's authorship is always one step ahead of us, or at least this is what he thinks, so that wherever we want to go with Kierkegaard is almost never sanctioned by him. The authorship doesn't really let us do that. So considered under this light, Kierkegaard thinks he knows that we want to be seduced. That is, we want to be deceived. We just don't know it. So being a master of moods, again he calls himself, Kierkegaard intentionally sets traps throughout his works by which he can capture individuals almost as a silhouette in order that the reader might stop looking at themselves, but instead look at the shadows being cast on the walls. And he does this most brilliantly in part one of either or, uh, precisely in the chapter titled Silhouettes, or Shadowgraphs, depending on your translation. Now, Kierkegaard can show secular readers many things insofar as they are human beings uh, or individuals. Now, that doesn't, I'm not saying that sarcastically, but and that seems like a pretty broad qualification, although it's only to claim that most individuals don't understand themselves to be individuals. So my advice then to secular readers approaching Kierkegaard is to rest. Yield yourself, that is. If you are aiming towards agreement with Kierkegaard or disagreement with him as a philosopher, examining his philosophical ideas, then no amount of cleverness or cunning argumentation is going to bring the individual forth as intended. So, yeah, that's kind of my advice, I guess. But next question, and I'm sorry for how much time I'm spending on the questions as is, but if you made it this far in the episode, then I'm sure you're doing okay and you'll get over it. But the next question comes from Devin. What is the spirit for Kierkegaard? Okay. So this is a pretty big question, and I hope you'll bear with my language in answering it. But I'd like to take this step by step, but this still does kind of require some intellectual heaviness, philosophical background, even if you will. But in some of my posts, uh, writing and lecture-based, I've argued again and again that the central idea or ideas in Kierkegaard are not anxiety, not the absurd or the paradox, not the stages of existence, not freedom, not subjectivity, um, but the central idea is rather spirit. Now, in The Sickness Unto Death, uh, written in 1849, modern philosophy is well acclimated to Kierkegaard's deliberation on spirit in the opening pages. In a sort of short, staccato-like fashion, we find the opening pages begin with, man is spirit. But what is spirit? Spirit is the self. What is the self? The self is that which relates itself to its own self, and so on and so forth. However, I instead like to think of spirit with the help from the concept of anxiety, which actually gives something of the concept more meaning, uh, or it brings the concept of spirit to life, if I can put it like that. And so the best way I think I could describe it is to begin by looking at the history of philosophy generally. When you look throughout the Western conversation on the question, what is man? Of course, you're met with different ideas and arguments of what a human being is or what it means to be under the general sort of nomenclature, man. Now, in examples like Aristotle and Rene Descartes, we see the usual course in philosophy to offer what have been called substantive view of the human person. Uh, substantive views of the human person. Now, substance in the philosophically packed sense just refers to being, 
Um, although substance, that word, is really a Latin mistranslation of the Greek word usios, which means being. So that's just some linguistic clarification moving forward. So Aristotle then offered a substantial view of the human person by suggesting a kind of dualism which included um, the unity of matter, which is the body, and form, which is the soul. Now the Greek words for matter and form are morphe and hyle. So this is kind of a dualism or excuse me, this kind of dualism has been called hylomorphic dualism in contrast to the substance dualism of Descartes, um, which is now matter and form as no longer bound up with one another, but under Descartes they become separated. Hence, the soul could exist independently of the body, and the relation then only becomes between the two as a sort of causal relationship uh, conceived under Descartes. Of course, Aristotle would disagree with all of that. Now, Kierkegaard is never interested in offering or elaborating on a substantive view of the human person. And I'm inclined to think that Kierkegaard more agreed with Aristotle on the dualism debate, but the truth is that we're never really going to get anything definitive from Kierkegaard. However, rather than focus on a substantive metaphysical view of the human person, really asking that question, what is man, in the usual sort of rationalistic metaphysical way, if you will, Kierkegaard is instead more opting for an ethical or descriptive view of the human person. And in fact, very explicitly in the concept of anxiety, Kierkegaard says that it is not my purpose to present a pretentious and bombastic philosophical deliberation on the relation between psyche, which is the Greek word for soul, and body, and to discuss in which sense the psyche itself produces its body, whether this be understood in the Greek way or in the German way. Here I have no need of such things. And he says this um, later on in the book in chapter 4. So quite explicitly, we're not giving anything definitive uh, metaphysically as to what Kierkegaard means by man or spirit. So by doing this, Kierkegaard is not focused on the human individual in terms of being, but instead of becoming. In fact, in The Sickness Unto Death, um, he says it really in a great way. He says that being is related to the ability to be as an, as an ascent. Let me say that one more time. In The Sickness Unto Death, Kierkegaard says that being is related to the ability to be as an ascent. Now, this explains why Kierkegaard says at the same time that man is spirit, but at the same time that man has yet to become spirit. Now, the ascent or upward movement of man is to become spirit, thereby knowing and willing themselves to be before God, whereas despair, Kierkegaard says, is the direction of being related to the ability to fall. And I'll come back to these points in a little uh, while when I treat despair and anxiety in more detail, but we notice that we have that double direction taking place where being in the sense of becoming is understood not as growth or a linear progression, but Kierkegaard understands being by way of ascent and by way of falling, moving downward, so that there's these two directions that are taking place in man. And so I'll get into those in a moment later. But moving forward, if you'll notice in the concept of anxiety and in the sickness unto death, now they're written five years apart. The concept of anxiety was in 1844. The sickness unto death was in 1849. Now, um, by this point, Kierkegaard was starting to assert himself more and more as a religious author. And so it's important to kind of keep these two uh, works conceptually different or separate from one another, if you will, even though we can look to... uh, similar conceptions in the works. Again, I'll talk about those details in a moment. But there are times in both of these works when Kierkegaard says that man is spirit. He'll go on to often clarify right afterwards or before that man is yet 
spirit. And notably, this is the case with Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, in the Garden of Eden, who Kierkegaard said before the fall was dreaming spirit. Hence, Adam was in a sense already spirit, but Kierkegaard says that the synthesis had yet to be posited. What does Kierkegaard mean by the synthesis? Well, wound up with spirit is the notion of synthesis being carried along with it. And I really understand them to be somewhat the same thing, although it should be made clear that the context of synthesis and the concept of anxiety is different from the kind of synthesis uh, mentioned in The Sickness Unto Despair. So from here forward, I, I can't speak of synthesis as if they meant the same thing in both works. And I mentioned this before. And this is just to say that they aren't totally unrelated to one another, but there are different emphases or there's greater attention being given to the ontological quality of man in one work uh, as opposed to the other. So the sickness unto death is more focused on the dialectical relation, to use a big word, between willing to be oneself before God, which is taken up in faith, and not willing to be oneself or to be rid of willing oneself, which is despair. Now, as such, it has a far more explicitly religious character than the concept, uh, which still has itself religious intent, but it isn't as explicit as sickness unto dis- um, the sickness unto death. And this work has to do instead with the anxiety. Now, I'm referring to the concept of anxiety. This work has to do instead with the anxiety accrued from the dialectic of freedom. Now, either pointing the individual towards anxiety about the good, which is the demonic, or anxiety about evil, which is sin. Now, the latter, anxiety about evil, allows for the proper mood of earnestness or passionate inwardness, so to speak, to allow the individual towards inward deepening and returning from their venture into the self back towards others in faith, hope, and love. Now, let's start from the beginning. Kierkegaard says that man is spirit, but what really is man that Kierkegaard is saying this. Now, Kierkegaard is working within a very particular framework of ontology. That is, the ontology or the philosophy of being found in Kierkegaard understands ontological principles as having a polar character to them. So in other words, the composition of man is made up from the combination or synthesis of two imbalanced and essential factors. Now, I say imbalanced because I don't want to say that these two factors in man are opposed to each other. So I'm using a softer claim that they are rather imbalanced. And I say also essential because you cannot have one factor without the other, or you can't emphasize one factor without diminishing the other. Now, this synthesis, which involves two factors or poles, if you like, Kierkegaard gives us three categories of these factors, the infinite and the finite, the eternal and the temporal, the possible and the necessary. Now, if you look at the various kinds of despair in the sickness unto death, they all match the two sets of factors just mentioned. There's the despair of infinitude and the despair of finitude, the despair of the eternal, the despair of possibility, the despair of necessity, the despair of the earthly, and all different kinds of despairs. Um, so then let's backtrack. So fundamentally, Kierkegaard asserts in a fundamental way that, Kierkegaard, or that man is comprised of body and soul. In fact, Kierkegaard refers to the Greek words for soul and body, psyche and somati, in calling man a psychosomatic being. However, man is not just body and soul, but he is also a third element, spirit. This inclusion of spirit is what Kierkegaard calls the positive third term. If spirit is left out and the relation between body and soul is only such that the relation between them relates only to the relation 
and not to the self, then this is what Kierkegaard calls the negative unity, whereas with spirit, it is the positive unity. Now, then this negative unity would be something like introversion, which is not what Kierkegaard means by the inwardness of spirit. There's a passage from his journals from 1849 where he explicitly says this. He, he writes, When an individual begins on some endeavor in consciousness or fully realizing that, instead of leading to the achievement of a finite goal, which is what they should not do, it's actually going to prevent them from fully realizing their own kind of consciousness. It becomes introverted in a redoubling of the self, he says. He calls this the merely human. The religious, he says, depends on how far the individual refers everything to God. So what introversion means for Kierkegaard is that the individual has understood themselves as a constituted or derived relation. In other words, by means of a negative unity, which leaves out the power that constitutes the relation, and that's Kierkegaard's indirect way of referring to God, the self relates itself back to its own self. And in this movement or process of self-relation, there's a kind of redoubling of the self that takes place. So that in the initial dialectical relation, which ought to be self and other, the relating self posits the relation back to itself. So the relation simply becomes the self and self, which is introversion. Certainly introversion has a kind of inward character to it, but there's a sense in which this kind of inward deepening becomes now a hindrance because the introverted or now somewhat closed self doesn't view themselves in an existential dialectic between themselves and the power that constitutes their mode of self-relation. So then man is spirit. Spirit is a synthesis between two factors. Now, what are the two factors again? More deeply than body and soul, there are categories which correspond to body, and that's our nature as finite, as temporal, bound to necessity, and categories which correspond to soul, again pertaining to our nature as infinite, eternal, and open to possibility. Now, the polar character of man is that these two factors are essential with one another. Now, put in a philosophically fancy way, they are in a constant dialectical relationship with one another. And this is just a way of saying that one factor can't be emphasized without the other being undermined. Hence, there is a present kind of disunity within man that is brought to unity only in the positing uh, of the synthesis of spirit. Now, what does it look like when a man is spirit? So, in Kierkegaard, you almost get an expression of his philosophy of spirit through the question, what is a man like when he is spirit? And also the opposite question, what is a man like when he is spiritless? Now, to clarify, these questions are phrased somewhat poorly because spirit is something man is and not something he is like. But I'm only trying to show the contrast between spirit and spiritlessness in a broad anthropological sense so that we can see examples of what spirit looks like and what spiritless looks like. On the other hand, now, The Sickness Unto Death is a work which elaborates on the different forms of despair that ensue from one not willing to be themselves. And as such, despair depends on the degree of one's consciousness towards their own individuality, ultimately before God. Now, this is why Kierkegaard emphasizes passionate inwardness so that the individual can come to a knowledge of themselves as an individual amongst other individuals. 
eventually with the hopes of having the individual see that they are a sinner before God. So for example, uh, C. Stephen Evans has a work on Soren Kierkegaard's Christian psychology, which suggests that there is a continuum of despair that one can find themselves in. Now on the lower end, there are forms of unconscious despair, where the individual despairs but doesn't even know it. And so as the continuum proceeds and self-consciousness increases, so too does the character of despair reveal itself in different ways. For example, uh, these conscious forms of despair are despair over the eternal, the despair of defiance, despair over the earthly, and so forth. And I'll come to address these subjects in future episodes and uh, here shortly as well. But moving on to the next question, which comes from Frank, from 1 to 10, how handsome was Soren? Uh, for me, he was an 11. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> it is in my honest opinion that Soren Kierkegaard is probably the most handsome figure in the history of Western philosophy. Maybe there's somebody that we're not thinking of or that I'm missing out, but as far as what I can tell from portraits and the character of his seductive lifestyle, um, he was a pretty good-looking dude, uh, outwardly and inwardly. So for me, it's a 12. Boom, got you beat. Question from Juan. Um, I know this is pretty standard, he asked, but how do you deal with doubts? Now, I wouldn't consider this standard at all, and I actually appreciate your asking. Bless you, first of all. Um, welcome. <laughs> now, since this is a Kierkegaardian-themed q and I'll try and answer your question in my own words, but nonetheless, I'll still try and keep them in the spirit of Kierkegaard, if that's all right. Now, Kierkegaard, throughout the journals and in his religious discourses, treats doubt pretty extensively, but what is significant to me about how he treats doubt is that he's digging more deeply at the roots of why one doubts. And insofar as we stand in a spiritual personalized relationship with God. And of course, I'm speaking as if such a thing would be possible, right? It's almost curious that one's doubts about the very existence of God would arise as a solely intellectual problem. Because Kierkegaard importantly remarked at one point that skepticism is really a position that you have to will yourself to remain in. There are no precise metaphysical constraints keeping you from the possibility of decision. And by decision, I'm referring something more to meaning, in the area of religion, eternity, immortality, and etc. And so Kierkegaard says in another place, uh, his journals, that in treating doubts, which are armed against us by the devil, we must use the same technique that Odysseus used in the Odyssey against the sirens, which was put wax over your ears. Now, I'll admit to you that if a religious person were to approach my doubts seriously by referring to the existence of a devil, and then telling me to just shut my ears to these doubts, I wouldn't be talking to him for very long. I wouldn't take him seriously at all. However, there's a passage where Kierkegaard makes this claim, and he goes on to clarify why he says this. So I'll just kind of read this in full if you don't mind. Uh, I'm sure you won't, so anyway. Coming as they do from the devil, you must have no truck with them, that is, the doubts, since you take it that his objections have already been dealt with, just as nowadays you assume yourself finished with an opponent once you have attacked his morals. Therefore, I take all talk of the devil to be a huge Christian subterfuge. The reason why these doubts can come up a second time for what now makes its second appearance under the name of temptation is what from the earlier standpoint we call doubt is that they were not rejected on the first occasion through a debate, but by some other force or shoot, pushing them aside. It is not because they have been contested that these temptations do not persist throughout the Christian's life since Christians, as we saw, would have no truck with them. But you can dull yourself to certain things. You can become spiritually deaf in one ear so that you cannot hear your name being called. Then finally, the Christian stands there ready. 
He points proudly to his final hour, and he speaks with a certain presumption of the peace with which he wants to face death. But what wonder? If a person has spent all his life familiarizing himself with a definite idea, what wonder if the idea appears to him in the way those with weak vision see everywhere sparkling lights before their eyes? What wonder if this sparkle or speck disturbs his vision of what really lies before him? It takes on the appearance of a happy madness. Certainly, one may point to the many brilliant and profound minds who have been Christians, but I would first reserve my, uh, for myself a little heresy concerning these most distinguished names. And second, we have all seen people who have demonstrated matchless acumen with an idea fix. So this passage then is getting at something deeper with doubt, and I think that's Kierkegaard's almost prying at us to ask more precisely why these doubts arise. And there's, of course, a million things to mention on this whole point, but Kierkegaard has another awesome passage from his book, Judge for Yourself, that I actually want to read. And he says this, um, When the professor stands at his highest level, and Christianity perceives itself in the professor as it once perceived itself in the monastery, the condition in Christendom will be, Christianity does not really exist. The conclusion with regard to what Christianity is, or what is Christianity, is awaited, he says. Faith does not exist. At most, it is a mood that facilitates between recalling Christianity as a vanished something and wanting or waiting for it as a future something. So then he goes on to make this kind of confusing phrase, and I'll, I'll explain it here in a moment. The most lenient way it can be affirmed is as possibility, or as it is called dialectically, in such a way that it just exerts pressure to reduce doubt to silence and to keep a little order in our lives. Quite simply, in the following manner, uh, as I have suggested in a previous book, the person who could have leave to come forward with a doubt would be someone whose life bears the marks of imitation, referring to an imitation of Christ, uh, or someone who by a decisive action has at least attempted to go so far out that there could be a question of becoming a Christian. Everyone else must hold his tongue. He has no right whatever to put in a word about Christianity, least of all, contra. Now, what Kierkegaard is saying here is that doubts are, of course, going to arise, and they're going to manifest themselves in a number of ways. Of course, we can understand them in terms of intellectual doubts or even temptations, spiritual trials, and all that sort of stuff. But Kierkegaard talks about this idea of becoming uh, an imitator of Christ, or the imitatio Christi. And this whole idea of imitation is that which exonerates doubts uh, completely, because by way of this imitation, the Christian exists in faith between what he called that vanished something of Christianity's past, and the individual stands in between also this awaiting of a future something. And this presently existing in between, of course, might give one a sense of doubt, but faith eliminates this sort of contradiction, if you will, um, not by sort of appeasing it, but by sort of asserting the individual in this sphere of the contradiction. Um, faith is not something that could be communicated directly to an individual. So when it comes to doubts, these, of course, are nonetheless going to arise, probably more so in the case of the understanding. Um, I'm sure there are things deeper, more psychologically motivated, um, spiritual, uh, spiritually related to why one has doubts, and these all probably need to be brought to light. But I think the important thing to mention, I think I'll, I'll finish here, is that when doubts do arise, this is a, a perfect opportunity for one to take note of the sense of uh, inward deep deepening that could take place in these doubts. In other words, when doubts arise themselves, when these questions, these inquiries, 
these challenges present themselves to the understanding. The Christian has to sort of approach them in the way that these are movements that are taking place inwardly um, and to explore the character more deeply as to what these inward movements are. And that's what I think is very important to consider with doubt. It's not that we have to keep accumulating reasons so as to appease um, our hesitance to, well, is the Christianity true? Is it not true? If I only had these books or if I only had this understanding or this constant, if I only had, um, is kind of the downfall of Christians generally, but of course, I think of the modern man as well. So hopefully that addresses your question in a satisfying way. I'm sure if it's not satisfying, then it's probably due to my own faults or maybe you, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the next question comes from Lorem, if I'm reading your name right. Uh, he said, he asked, what does Kierkegaard mean by subjectivity is untruth, the implications of inwardness in relation with the truth, and his understanding about the world historical and the ethical? Okay, so that's a pretty big question. But I think your question may have been from either a certain passage of Kierkegaard that I'm probably not recalling, uh, because he tends to speak somewhat paradoxically, or maybe a misunderstanding on your part. Um, but the central idea in Kierkegaard's philosophy is that subjectivity is truth, and the crowd is untruth. Uh, which is actually precisely what is meant in your question that subjectivity is simply a subjective or inward relation to the truth. Now, David F. Uh, Swenson, one of the early experts in Kierkegaard in the U.S., uh, who worked alongside Walter Lawry um, and his initial translations of Kierkegaard, uh, he has a fabulous book called Something About Kierkegaard where he talks about uh, Kierkegaard's existential dialectic. It's the same name as the chapter in the book. And he clarifies the whole subjective and objective distinction in Kierkegaard pretty well. And I believe there should be a PDF available online uh, for this chapter. Now, as to the idea of the world historical and the ethical, I'll try, my, I'll try my best to describe this as succinctly and simply as possible, but there's a lot to cover. Uh, Kierkegaard is contrasting between two kinds of history as it relates to the human individual. And he's somewhat getting this idea from Aristotle, um, who regarded the soul as history. So Kierkegaard speaks of, first, the individual personal development, and, and second, the world historical development. And both of these refer to the individuals coming to be either in an individual way, or they're being appropriated to the world historical development. Um, that is how other individuals are mutually coming to be. Now, this distinction was more relevant to his treatment of original sin and showing how the individual not only has his own personal history to develop and mature, but to show likewise that subsequent to Adam, the whole human race has a qualitative share in his partaking of the hist world historical process. So hence, there is the sinner's individual historical development, and then there is the entire sinful human race, the known by the Latin massa peccati, or the mass of sin, being involved in a world historical process. Now, this idea is more expounded upon in the concept of anxiety, uh, which I would refer you to chapters one and two um, of that book for this subject, though admittedly it's a pretty difficult uh, read. Now, as far as the ethical, there's a lot to say about this, but I'll remain within a summary clarification and somewhat of a naive introduction of it, if you will. So relevant areas of reading are, of course, either one, part two, fear and trembling, even the first chapter after the introduction uh, in Kierkegaard's uh, concept of anxiety. Um, in the concept specifically, Kierkegaard says that the ethical could be understood in the same way that Christians understand the law, which has to do with universals. Thou shalt not, thou shalt do this, etc. 
Hence, as far as aesthetic existence goes, the sensate individual bound by aesthetic existence can rise above this by way of a resolution of the will towards ethical existence, which brings the individual out of themselves and in relation with the community. Now, from this ascent to the ethical or the universal, the individual then becomes the universal. However, in his own unique expression of saying that it is the law which brings death, Kierkegaard says that the individual can rise above the ethical, the universal, by way of a teleological suspension of the ethical, or his fancy phrase for what is essentially faith. This move, this leap, if you will, into the religious is what characteristically was taking place in the story of Abraham and Isaac, which Kierkegaard regards as the paradox. Now, the ethical man could very well regard Abraham as a lunatic or psychopath, whereas the man of spirit, who is above the ethical, can only meaningfully understand Abraham's actions and intent for what they are for or what they point to. Now, in Fear and Trembling, uh, written in 1843, Kierkegaard writes, or excuse me, Johannes de Salentio, he says, For faith is this paradox, that the particular is higher than the universal. Yet in such a way, be it observed, that the movement repeats itself, and that consequently the individual, after having been in the universal, now as the particular, isolates himself as higher than the universal. And this is kind of scratching at this idea of rep uh, repetition. Um, that's going to come later and be more emphasized in Kierkegaard's works. Now, last but certainly not least, I'll combine all three of the remaining questions into one general inquiry and move from there. Now, Vladimir asks, what is despair? And finally, in the same vein, two questions from Gordon Marino. How does Kierkegaard's analysis of despair differentiate it from depression? And what precisely is the connection between despair and anxiety? Well, yeah, so first of all, to Gordon, bless you and thank you for submitting a question at all because I should really be the one asking you these questions. And so if you already know the answers to these questions or if you have an answer for yourself, uh, then bless you once again for putting up with my attempt to uh, try and answer them here. Well, as I understand it, anxiety, depression, um, despair, and melancholy all have specific places in the authorship of Kierkegaard and in his life as well. And so I'm not sure as to these specific Danish words that Kierkegaard uses for these terms, although I do know the Danish word tungsind, uh, which is the word Kierkegaard used for melancholy. That's about it. So I guess I'll start with anxiety. Um, in the concept of anxiety, in chapter 1, section 5, Kierkegaard has a passage which I'll just read out loud. He says, man is a synthesis of the physical and the psychical. However, a synthesis is unthinkable if the two are not united in a third. This third is spirit. In innocence, man is not merely animal, for if he were at any moment of his life merely animal, he would never become man. So spirit is present, but as immediate, as dreaming. Inasmuch as it is now present, uh, as it is now present, it is in a sense a hostile power, for it constantly disturbs the relation between soul and body, a relation that indeed has persistence and yet does not have endurance, inasmuch as it receives the latter by the spirit. On the other hand, spirit is a friendly power, since it is precisely that which constitutes the relation. Now, this is where things kind of shift. What, then, is man's relation to this ambiguous power? It relates itself as anxiety. Do away with itself, the spirit cannot. Lay a hold of itself, the spirit cannot, as long as it has itself outside of itself. Now, anxiety in this work is connected to the activity that takes place 
between the synthesis posited between body and soul, how spirit disturbs this relation whenever one category asserts itself or tries to assert itself in freedom. Now, in that sense, anxiety is one important category related to sin, like despair, that has to do with Kierkegaard's existential dialectic. However, what is despair that it differs from anxiety? Well, now, in anxiety, the relation of spirit to the self posits itself in the dialectic of freedom, which isn't freedom to do this or that thing, but rather a dialectic which is either directed towards freedom, which is faith, or unfreedom, the demonic. Now, in despair, the emphasis on the relation of spirit to the self changes. Now, the dialectic is no longer the dialectic of freedom, but now more precisely, the dialectic of eternity which is Kierkegaard's emphasizing of the religiously significant dimension of man's life. And so this dialectic is expressed by way, of, by way of either the individual willing to be themselves, ultimately before God, or not willing to be themselves. And so this dialectic can expose itself in the number of ways that the individual has related themselves to possibility and necessity, infinitude and finitude, and etc., which would bring me to your next question, having to do with how despair differentiates itself from depression. And so, for the one part, I understand depression to be different than melancholy uh, in Kierkegaard. And I think Ernest Becker, in his famous book, The Denial of Death, was really on the mark when he equated Kierkegaard's despair of possibility uh, to depression. And hence, to answer your question succinctly, depression is a form of despair, although it is not despair itself in its exhaustive sense. Um, so this form of despair would suggest that the individual despairs over possibility. Now, this is an unconscious form of despair, where the individual isn't focused so much on the conscious self, uh, the will to be oneself, or the synthesis that Kierkegaard says. And given this form of despair, they therefore venture outward into possibility. Now, what this means is that the self has yet to become itself. And so this is possibility. However, the self also is and this is necessity. However, despair of possibility occurs when all things are possible for the self. That is, nothing is actual. So now, even though this individual becomes numbed, if you will, by these infinite possibilities, there are really only two possibilities. On the one hand, to become wishful or yearnful, or the other to become melancholic, fantastic. Now, in the despair of possibility, the individual sort of hands... Um, hands himself up, or I should, uh, let me put this another way. In the despair of possibility, the individual gives themselves up to possibility and they leave their despair to the realm of the imagination. And as such, they are kept or prevented from willing to be themselves. And it is in this area of the imagination that the melancholic, fantastic individual resides not so much in existence, but in existence possibility. They are constantly recreating, finding, or in search of themselves because they don't know what they are. Um, and of course, there's a million things to say about that, but hopefully that answers your question. And of course, like I said, you know, I could go into so much detail about despair, anxiety, and depression, but I think that succinctly kind of treats the difference that depression is just one form of despair, um, not of course despair itself, and that anxiety and despair talk about the same kinds of things, but they're dialectics with different inferences, and the, or emphasis, I should say. And that's kind of my interpretation. So, um, albeit, God forbid, that I'm totally off the mark there. Um, so, I'm sure you could probably be the judge of that. But insofar as you asked the question, there's my answer. So, um, God bless to all of you who sent in questions. I hope to discuss these sort of 
things again sometime in the future uh, around different subjects. And so, as I always say at the end of these lectures, videos, and so forth, God bless you. Thank you so much for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the end uh, of my videos and so forth. Um, so, of course, God bless you. Be sure to follow the page wherever I have it available on YouTube, WordPress, Instagram, um, Facebook, some other places I'm probably forgetting. But thank you so much. God bless you and have a wonderful day or night.